0: Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. We also appreciate whatever other community station you may be listening to us on. And uh, I'm David Hostetter.
1: I'm Stefan Hostetter.
2: And I'm Lauren Latour. Thanks much for joining us today. You are, as always, deeply appreciated.
0: Indeed. And Lauren, we're going to get to an interview in which Lauren speaks with the uh, lovely Christian chaplain. Wait, what's her name? Gabby Gelderman right who also runs these climate grief workshops that she facilitates but you also do climate grief coaching and other facets or is it the same project
2: she works with people um, on issues related to climate grief in a couple different formats Um, we mostly spend our interview time talking about the climate grief circles that she's recently opened up which are like they take place in a group setting for folks to work through their climate grief, but she also does offer uh, one-on-one or smaller group coaching sessions as well.
0: Excellent. And uh, we're going to get to that great interview. And, uh, but first we're going to do the news. And even before that, Stefan just edited the interview and he wanted to respond to what he learned in the interview briefly.
1: People who've listened to the show for a bit know that we've been thinking and asking people how they deal with climate anxiety for the last about six months. And I think this is a real chance to dive much more deeply into someone who's thought about this so much that, that you know, did academic work on it and has now sort of really processed it. So I think it's a really, if, if there's anyone you know in your life who is working through this kind of thing, I highly recommend sharing the second half of this episode with them because it truly is, I think, a very helpful way and beginning to start thinking about it. But in the interview, she mentioned something about intention uh, and the human response to it. Gabby speaks about how we respond differently to acts where we can ascribe intention uh, than acts where we can inscribe natural disasters. Uh, And she notes that there's a particular anger that comes with our climate grief is due to the fact that there are people out there doing this to us. And I found that particularly striking because earlier today I was in a conversation with a fellow organizer who was trying to think of ways to have conversations with the general public about climate change. And in that conversation, we discussed just how differently the Canadian populace responded to the the disasters that struck B.C. in the past year. Than they would have had that level of destruction come from something like another country, you know the hyper the hypothetical climate change landia that exists in the Pacific. You know, nearly if nearly six hundred people had died in BC due to some kind of bomb or attack from climate change landia, which is roughly how many people died uh, due to the heat wave last summer there is zero chance that our response would be to simply feel bad about it and then carry on as if nothing happened. And then if a few months later, another attack destroyed highways and killed over a half a million animals, we would not. We would see a full mobilization of the state to respond. And yet instead, all we're getting is the B.C. government bragging about how fast can rebuild highways. Those of us who are experiencing climate anxiety and climate grief and climate dread sort of see climate change as what's happening to us as intentional. It's one of the reasons why in the show and more and more in the movement, you hear people being like, no, 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 this is not just happening. And it's not happening. It's not all of us doing this to ourselves. You know, there are people out there who are working in their own self-interest to make climate change worse. And those of the world who, you know, who are content to protect the status quo, I think are either failing to believe that there's anything happening at all, but that that's a diminishing number of people. But more so, I think that these are people who see climate change as something, not as something that is being done to us, but rather that is something that's just happening. And I think that leads to this level of malaise in responding to it because it's as if it's a natural disaster and we don't have that same kind of anger or same kind of response when something doesn't feel intentional. But we are being intentionally attacked by people like both we our futures and our children's futures are being attacked by individual people who are still profiting off of that and i think that is something that i will think about more but to you lauren
2: no i think you're right you're you're speaking to sort of that um that point that that many people have raised lately which is the idea that like we need to find or maybe just use alternative terminology to like a natural disaster when like a heat wave, like when a heat wave strikes, like it did in, 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 in BC or on the West coast this past, this past year, because but like you say, it's not naturally occurring. It's not just like a phenomena that happens because it, it's not like an earthquake that's happened because two tectonic plates just happened to slip at that exact moment and resulted in an earthquake and subsequent tsunami. It's like, these are things that are happening not due to natural processes, but due to human intervention in, in an otherwise like natural system. Not that humans aren't naturally occurring ourselves, but that, that's a whole other thing. But anyway, we need to either, like I said, come up with uh, with alternative terms or if alternative terms have already been coined, we need to use them more intentionally and more rigorously when we're discussing these concepts to make it clear that, like you said, that these are things that have intentionality behind them, um, or, at, or at best, like really, really m- malignant neglect is sort of the only way I can think about it. Um, if it's not intentional necessarily, um, but yeah, uh good food for thought and um really happy that 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 sort of brought that up for you after listening to the interview. Um yeah, uh Gabby really raises some fantastic points and, and speaks from not only a place of like deep personal experience as somebody who is an activist and, and deals with climate grief herself, but, um, somebody who, like you said, like has, has worked through these concepts, um, on an academic basis. And, and, and then in her daily life as somebody who helps people quote cope, uh, cope with grief and from, from a variety of facets, um, of, of their being. Um, so I think, yeah, it's a really great conversation I got to have with her. So hope hope people get something from it.
1: Uh, one useful term that I'll before we go jump into a short music break before getting into the
0: internet. We're not doing any music okay, breaks. Well you do little a little th- I got a thing. thicket of Sorry. I told you I had a thicket of news. Sorry, okay.
2: well, There's I'm, like a little bit like beep 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 beep. <laughs> yeah.
1: But one last term before we jump into the thicket of news. Uh. The futurist Alex Steffen uses the term predatory delay. I'm willing to accept that he may not have come up with the term, but he's the one I've seen use it. And the idea there is that the delaying of action at this point is predatory on everyone else who will suffer from it. That delay itself is an act of predation. And I think that is a helpful tool in my mind to take that idea that delay feels so non aggressive because it's normally the t- path of let's not worry too much, let's chill out kind of response, but I think it's a nice term to sort of bring in teeth to uh the reality that it is so dangerous to delay
0: you new in your terms I like your terms. terms they come out they get they get brought back year after year it's the terms we need new terms I agree all right, so climate news Beep. A recent study published uh, by the American Chemical Society argues that humans are creating so many products that we have exceeded the safe threshold for the maintenance of life because the sheer volume of our production has passed beyond our ability to monitor it. In the study in question, such products are called novel entities, and are things previously foreign to Earth's cycles, such as artificial chemicals like pesticides and industrial compounds, as well as antibiotics and plastics, and we're simply creating too much of it now to have any idea what it's doing to the Earth. Therefore, the scientists conclude that we have passed the planetary boundary. These novel entities are defined as new substances, new forms of existing substances, and modified life forms entities that are novel in a geological sense and that could have large-scale impacts that threaten the integrity of Earth system processes. The scientists observe, quote, an ever-growing number of novel entities are found in remote locations of the planet, and the number of grossly contaminated locations is increasing despite remediation efforts. They also observe that the various distinct effects of these products are interacting and having larger combined effects on Earth's systems. They argue for a cap on these products, despite the extreme difficulty of implementing one. And they conclude, quote, We are not naive to the considerable challenge posed by reducing chemical and plastic releases in order to respect the novel entity planetary boundary, especially with lock-in of chemical supply providing resistance against such changes. The recent call for an international science policy body with oversight over chemicals and waste may provide a forum for informing such actions that are needed to help safeguard the Earth system. There has apparently been a 50-fold increase in chemical production since 1950, and it is projected to triple again by 2050. In addition, a recent study published in the journal Environmental Research says that nanoplastic pollution, which are pieces of plastic more toxic and smaller than microplastics, were recently found at the North and South Poles for the first time. These nanoplastics can travel in ice and air and ocean currents. New research from Leiden University, and this is for Stefan, because he loves to hate on the efficacy of veganism.
1: That's not
0: true. New research from Leiden University is showing that wealthy countries switching to plant-based diets is even more beneficial for Earth's health than previously thought. In an article about the study, the university writes, quote, The researchers found that the switch to plant-based diets would reduce annual agricultural production emissions by 61%. Additionally, converting former cropland and pastures to their natural state would remove another 98.3 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by the end of the century. This carbon profit would significantly help to keep the planet from warming more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. The researchers go on to argue for redirecting agricultural subsidies to farmers for biodiversity protection and carbon sequestration. The study focused on the 54 wealthiest countries since they have the highest impact on the planet and their citizens generally have more dietary options.
1: First, I don't question the efficacy of ah. a plant-based diets in
0: carbon emissions. The vegans are always coming for you. You're always ripping on them. It's like...
1: I have, I have concerns that those who push veganism as the only solution mm. end up participating in a colonial action of intelligent indigenous populations that they sh- about how they should eat and that they are, in fact, living on their lands incorrectly. That is my concern. It is quite well documented that reducing your meat consumption is pretty solid from a carbon standpoint.
2: Well said, Stefan. I'm in agreement. Um, also, it's pronounced Leiden University. Not that it Ugh. really matters. Not that. Not that I care about pronunciation of I don't know other European words. It doesn't matter.
0: The Dutch.
2: The Dutch. The okay. The chemical story. That point that you raised around a 50-fold increase in chemical production since 1950, and like there are and like there being legitimate sort of environmental ramifications as a result of that. There is a big disservice to sort of the issue around chemicals that the, not only the beauty industry, but like the general wellness industry has had a really detrimental effect on how seriously we take issues relating to like chemical production and, and effluence and and plastic pollution, because at least myself, I consume a lot of media and content content around sort of like the beauty industry and the wellness industry. And like the quote unquote, clean beauty industry is something that like, I'm, I, I am inundated with all the time. And as a result, there's a large portion of the population that really doesn't take the concept of like toxins in beauty or toxins in the products we consume very seriously because it's been like co-opted and parroted to the point of like parody by like Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop or like, I don't know, various companies trying to hop on like the toxin-free bandwagon. And I think what's happened is that now we relate it to kind of like fear mongering and marketing practices, because by and large, when you get a company like Goop or I don't know, Whole Foods telling you that like this soap is toxin-free, so it's safe to use. What that tells me is that's just a marketing term and it doesn't mean anything. And there's no such thing as toxins in products and chemicals are nothing to be afraid of because everything's a chemical. It's like, it's We went from a world where we didn't fear chemical effluent at all because it was the mid fifties and none of us knew any better. And everybody thought DuPont was their best friend to a few years ago where everybody was freaked out about chemicals and every like mommy blogger was like, you have to feed your family only organic because to do otherwise is to murder them. And now we're at this spot again, where we're not really that freaked out about chemicals because it's been co-opted by the mommy bloggers and like the beauty industry when in actuality, to a degree, we should be talking about chemical pollution and chemical effluence and and plastic, but just in a way that like, isn't being driven by marketing because like, yes, your lipstick isn't killing you. Your mouthwash isn't killing you. Your, your soap isn't killing you, but we should be talking about like the dangers of repeated exposure to certain chemicals over time and how like there is an environmental effect to the ways in which we like use and abuse chemicals on an industrial scale.
1: Yeah. And I must admit that for all of the climate anxiety uh, that I feel, I at least feel like I have a general grasp on the problem and a general understanding and idea in how the world can move forward and tackle it, which completely goes out the window when it comes to the other ways for polluting the world like plastics or chemicals. And it's a slight tangent, but if folks haven't listened to the Radio Lab episode on lead poisoning, uh, I highly recommend it. It's called Heavy Metal, came out last September, And it sort of follows the life of this scientist who kind of accidentally stumbles onto the fact that at the time we were poisoning ourselves with lead. Just lead was everywhere to incredible degrees. And since then, we've done some things, you know, like unleaded gasoline, uh, which has helped remove a lot of lead from from our systems. And yet, you know, still more work to be done in many places. But now we're doing the exact same thing with plastics. Like the fact that microplastics are everywhere. We have no idea what the long-term effects of having plastics in our bloodstream is, and like plastics have been found in the Marianas Trench, as Dave mentioned, they've been found in the North and South Poles. We are coating the earth in plastic, and that is not sustainable. There are many different complications here because, for example, guess what vegan leather is, people?
0: It's plastic. Here we go against the vegans.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, because
2: that's the thing. Even when you get a product that's like supposed to be like I've recently seen on the market, it's like it's vegan leather, but it's actually made from pineapple stuff. And it's like, well, is it made from pineapple stuff and then synthesized into a product that for all intents and purposes is a polymer? Because if that's the case, then then it is plastic. It's pleather. It's what I wore in the third grade when I was trying to look like Britney Spears. And I like made my mom buy me a pair of pleather pants like anyway
1: we need to move off of these types of things and towards just like m- more natural fibers and everything else. But because plastic is just, t- t- it's, 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 it's such a quote unquote useful product that like it should be saved for the things that we can't do other stuff with and anything else that we can create with other products, we should f- go back to those other products. Because there are some things I'm certain that plastic dramatically, it's super hard to change, but there are a lot of things that we could easily just not be doing.
0: What's interesting about this study, I think, is that they're saying the planetary boundary for safe the safe threshold has been passed simply because we're making way too much of the stuff to ever feasibly monitor, let alone manage it. It's not as if they say this is definitely impacting the world in this way, in a straightforward way like uh, carbon pollution. They're just like, this has gone way beyond our ability to even track it, and therefore that's the threshold, right? It's, it's, an, it's an interesting argument. I don't see how it's strictly scientific, but it is an interesting argument. Okay, so now we are back with the Green Majority doing environmental news climate news and then Lauren Latour will be interviewing Gabby Gelderman Gabby Gelderman a chaplain who runs climate grief work- workshops and is also a climate grief coach All right so the environmental news beep beep a recent study in the journal Global Environmental Change found that the UN Green Climate Fund which is meant to provide money for climate imperiled countries to adapt is not accessible to half of the most vulnerable countries on its list, because the process for getting the money is a bureaucratic labyrinth that these these countries don't have the resources to traverse. These countries include Afghanistan, Eritrea, Somalia, and Yemen. Uh, Many of these countries have been directly harmed by the American war machine, and it has recently been found that the U.S. military creates more CO2 pollution than entire countries like Portugal or Denmark. The Biden administration recently decided to give the military even more funding than they were asking for, but the administration's climate measures are not being passed, and this is leading to climate financiers and companies in the U.S. to move ahead of the government in mitigation funding, with heavy investments in carbon capture and storage technology. $4.7 billion from the U.S. infrastructure bill is going to the cleanup of abandoned oil wells, and states are now reporting a higher number of abandoned wells as a result. Cleanup of abandoned oil wells in Canada, meanwhile, is not being funded nearly as much as it should, according to the Alberta Liabilities Disclosure Project. Oil companies operating in Canada have so far paid $237 million in security deposits to be, clean, to be used to clean up their mess. The Parliamentary Budget Officer recently calculated that it would cost $1 billion to clean up the wells by 2025. Expert critics, however, according to the Canadian press, are arguing that even that one billion dollars is just a tiny, very tiny fraction of the actual cost of cleaning up the wells, which are slowly degrading the environment, most of which are not included in the report because they're not yet considered entirely abandoned. Reagan Boychuk of the Alberta Liabilities Disclosure Project said, quote, There is no number in that report that is reliable and credible and defensible. Uh, One of his points was that many of the companies owning these wells are essentially bankrupt, but they're not officially bankrupt, and therefore the wells are not officially considered abandoned or orphaned. A shell facility in Alberta, meant to showcase carbon capture technology, has actually emitted 2.5 billion more tons of greenhouse gases than it has captured over the past four years. The plant captures carbon and turns it into hydrogen, but in the process creates more emissions than it saves, according to Global Witness. A major canola plant meant to produce renewable diesel is set to be built in Saskatchewan by an oil company going net zero, but it may not reduce emissions very much and could fall victim to and mess with fluctuating food prices. The Energy Mix reports, quote, the price of cooking oil increased 41.4 percent between December 2020 and December 2021. Canola is also used as animal feed, particularly for hogs and farmed fish, so supply shortages are leading to price hikes for those commodities as well. A recent report from Corporate Knights has found that under Canada's carbon tax scheme, the the highest carbon emitters are paying the lowest carbon prices. Aaron Cosby of the International Institute for Sustainable Development said, quote, These aren't the kind of incentives that will motivate breakthrough innovation or decarbonization. Corporate Knights argues that this is partially because the federal government is afraid of the political power of the provinces. And finally, the Energy Mix reports, quote, The federal government's plan to introduce a tax credit for carbon capture utilization and storage technology hit the top tier of the Canadian climate agenda last week after more than 400 climate scientists and other academics wrote to Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christia Freeland, arguing her to drop the idea. The group called the carbon capture and storage investment a pipe dream and said, quote, "...we must instead move forward with proven climate solutions that will contribute the most to emissions reductions," And these are increased electrification, wide-scale use of renewable energy, and intensifying energy efficiency.
1: I'm going to jump back for a second to the story about the abandoned oil wells, because prices currently for oil are are rebounding, and we're beginning to see Alberta, Premier Kenny and others start cheering on about the great profits that are flowing once more. And it is an imperative that while this occurs we keep these wells on top of mind because even just last year we watched these oil these very same oil companies cry poor and receive billions of dollars of subsidies including extra money specifically to clean up these wells and unless something is done to ensure that these companies cannot simply siphon off the profits and leave these well leave these wells behind to be cleaned up by the public I guarantee you that this will continue to happen. There is almost nothing in the world I am more certain about than the Alberta oil industry will not clean up all of these wells. No additional money should make it into shareholders' hands from the sale of Albertan oil until they have adequately funded this work and the next time oil companies come to the federal government hands-out asking for more money because the price of oil has dipped again, the Canadian government should buy these companies. Use what meager profits that are left to build up a fund to help transition the oil workers into their next jobs, and the rest should go directly to cleaning up these environmental disasters. Anything else is an abdication of duty, And allowing the prairies to be plundered with no recourse for those who will be left behind when the world moves off oil, which is coming soon.
2: You raise a really good point there, and I think it sort of it it ties into um, an earlier story uh, about. this big sign-on letter uh, that was um, put together and endorsed by over four or five hundred different academics um, about uh, carbon capture storage and carbon capture utilization and storage technology, um, and how uh, it shouldn't be um, like incentivized via tax breaks from the federal government. And and the idea there is is kind of similar to your to to the point you raised around. Um, subsidies from the government that were intended to go towards oil and um uh, abandoned oil well cleanup being abused and actually just like continuing to fund the fossil fuel industry it's 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 the same idea with um with the the risk of the Canadian federal government giving a tax break or what is essentially a subsidy to an oil and gas company to fund carbon capture utilization and storage technology ultimately there is <laughs> there's no real guarantee that they would use it to fund CCUS and e- even if CCUS did work and was proven which it it really isn't. If you give any money to the oil and gas industry, it will be used to continue to prop to prop up the industry and won't actually be used to meaningfully reduce emissions in 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 any tangible way. So we just shouldn't give them any money.
0: Stefan, you say that you want you think the government should buy these smaller companies that are going bankrupt.
1: No, but I think I think that the Canadian government should nationalize the oil industry.
0: You said they should buy. How does that not uh, equate to the public funding the cleanup of those wells?
1: Because they could use the profits that they would still get over the next twenty, thirty years to mm-hmm. fund the looking up the, kind of the wells, which is not happening right now.
0: My thing is that like the nationalizing the oil industry is different from buying all the companies. If you buy all the companies, you're giving all of those companies like the market price for their organization. Whereas nationalizing it, at least from like a left wing progressive notion, would not be would not be buying out the private players. It would be co. It would be co-opting their structures.
1: Sure. All right. Like, and also, they're not going to buy Exxon, right? Exxon has, or like, most of the Canadian, most of these companies that are in the oil sands are these huge global players that I right. don't really think the Canadian government should buy.
0: I mean, conceivably, they could be like, "This is our land. We now control all this product." But they might get sued, and there would be all this international pressure. Y-
1: sure. Yeah. Like, I, there are ways to do it. Nor- Norway did it. Um, and I think that the, it is ultimately the only way to ensure that the profits from the next 20, 30 years go to the places they have to, which is supporting for a just transition and cleaning up these wells. Like, I think that's the only place any profit that comes out of the oil sands should be going to is one of those two things.
2: I did remember the one more point I wanted to make totally not on this conversation at all, but, um, based off of one of the last stories you, you, you talked about Dave, which was, um. Around sort of like Canada's carbon tax scheme, and um, and and the fact that uh, these aren't the kind of incentives that are going to motivate breakthrough innovation, and uh, Corporate Knights argues that this is because the federal government is afraid of uh, provinces from a political standpoint. And I just think that's a point that we don't have time to dig into today, but we do need to spend some time on is that idea of like governance and how it's affecting. Um, our climate policy, because like we are as a as a nation, whether or not you acknowledge that there's like legitimacy to the Canadian nation, we are a federal, we're we're a federation, um, which means that there are certain things that provinces exclusively have jurisdiction over. And um, there are certain things that are kind of in a gray area. And they're just areas that the federal government doesn't actually have as much power over as we would like or as or as some interpretations might might call for. Um, and, and as a result, like there are a lot of sort of stumbling blocks when it comes to policy, things that it would be, if, if we operate within a different system, the federal government would be able to enact perhaps more widely sweeping policy, um, or regulation. And, um, and we're not able to, because of the way in which we're structured and the amount of power that's given to, uh, provinces and their jurisdictionality. So that's just, it's a, it's an interesting conversation that comes up a lot in sort of like climate policy spheres. And maybe we don't talk about enough as lay people um, and, and might be worthy of digging into at a later date if we can.
0: Excellent. And with that, we'll take a short break and come back speaking with Gabby Gelderman about climate grief, the chaplain.
2: And welcome back to the Green Majority. My name's Lauren. You're here with me today. And Gabby Gelderman, who's gonna tell us a little bit about the climate grief circles that she has started up and started up recently and the climate grief work she's doing, which is so important and so exciting and, and a topic we never talk about enough here at the Green Majority. So, Gabby, do you wanna tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to this climate grief work? Just like you in a nutshell, basically.
3: Sure. Yeah. So I am a chaplain. I work currently as a hospital chaplain, but before that I was a climate organizer and did some environmental education as well here in uh, Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. And I was doing that for some years and really just had my own experience of pretty intense climate anxiety and climate grief and didn't have, didn't realize this at the time, but had nowhere to put it, like no context for it. And it really contributed, I think, to burnout and, and just like mental health issues. And yeah, kind of like reached a breaking point and switched paths. I was in an ed program thinking of becoming a teacher and I dropped out and some stuff happened in between. But then I went back to school for theology, intending to be a chaplain and hoping that I could make climate grief chaplaincy a thing, which it's Slowly becoming something. But uh, yeah, so that was, I guess, three years ago. And I did my theology degree at St. Stephen's College here in Edmonton. And I wrote my thesis on climate grief in Climate Organizers. So I did some grief circles there with participants and wrote a lot about the process of grieving, especially in, in group settings and collective grief. Yeah. So that's a bit of an overview.
2: Yeah. No, that's incredible. So obviously, like, the field of climate grief is like new and versioning, but you are in no way new to it. If if A, it's something that you've worked with yourself and B, it's something that you wrote a thesis about, that's incredible. It also, that must've been like cutting edge literature that you were publishing. Cause I remember like, studying a little bit about climate grief and anxiety a few years ago in university and there was very little literature published about it at the time so like you're at the cusp of academia there that's incredible so how do, like you you mentioned a little bit about your own personal experience with climate grief but how do you see it showing up in your community and in your organizing circle because like you said you do some organizing in Edmonton where you live
3: <laughs> yeah A lot of numbness, a lot of just like emotional numbing. So many organizers I know, and this was me for a long time and still is at certain points, Like you can acknowledge, like theoretically acknowledge the the reality of the climate crisis or deal with it like on a cognitive level or an analytical level kind of, but it's a very different story to accept it emotionally. And just in so many people, I really see, and I've heard this from people that they're like, I just take my emotions out of it like I just have to like put a wall around them and put them to the side and focus on the work on the organizing work and all the day-to-day stuff and I think some people see it I've heard from people that they're like I can't go there because if I go there I'll who knows if I'll ever get out it feels like this endless kind of black hole for people and I think honestly like just recently because of COVID really like people reaching the end of their rope it's like they can't avoid it anymore in some ways and i've just like sensed a lot of despair and like hopelessness really come to the surface and a lot of people i think in part because of covid really just witnessing our government's response to covid and how demoralizing that is to to see before our very eyes again and again and so i think that's like just really made people grapple in an immediate way with what's coming in the future
2: that all completely makes sense in a recent post to Instagram that I saw, which is how I found out about the climate grief circles, you had sort of identified that these circles might be for you if you're feeling a sense of dread, if you're feeling numb, if you feel blind with rage when the topic of climate change is brought up. And I know, like you said, a lot of folks, that second one, the numbness one, really does resonate with me, especially. How did you settle on or come to this language that you use to describe climate grief? And how how are you approaching these conversations in a way that like might differ? From the day-to-day way that you would address, like climate grief is like a separate type well, is it a separate type of grief than other kinds that you might encounter in your day-to-day life? You said you're a hospital chaplain, which I imagine you're dealing with people in some of like their their darkest, scariest moments. So mm-hmm. you're obviously no stranger to the various facets and faces of this, I don't know, type of emotion. but yeah, so how does your approach when you're dealing with climate grief differ potentially, if at all?
3: Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Yeah, I do think of it as different in some ways and the same in other ways. I think one distinction is I named that like dread, numbness and rage. I think dread is unique in some ways to climate grief. It's very much looking to the future and like this sense of dread and despair about what's coming. And I talk about this in my thesis, but there is a type of grief that researchers have identified called non-finite grief. And an example of someone who's struggling with that would be someone with a chronic physical illness that is lifelong and debilitating. And they're so non-finite in the sense that it's just an ongoing form of grief. If it's not attached to one event, like a death or or a loss, but it's an ongoing life-altering loss that the person is constantly having to adjust to emotionally and doesn't see an end in sight. Like it's kind of this... I'm gonna be dealing with this for the rest of my life. And I do see that in the hospital sometimes. Actually, in like in psychiatry, there's people like just dealing with lifelong mental illness and other people dealing with lifelong physical illness. There's definitely some dread there. And then in some ways it's the same as all grief. Like all grief is dealing with loss. All grief, I think, touches onto these deep existential questions of what's the purpose of my life who am I without this thing that I once had? And with climate grief, that's it's all there. It's very existential because it's hard to wrap our head around what is the loss, especially for people coming from a place of privilege. It's like, if you haven't lost your home to a wildfire, have I actually lost something? And I think of loss a lot in like our lost stories or our lost hopes for the future. A big one that lots of people are dealing with is like, The belief that their life is going to be the same as their parents' life or better than their parents' life and, or the hope or the desire to have children. Like these are really devastating losses to come to terms with. Yeah. But in so, in some ways it is the same. The rage, I think there's rage in all types of grief, but with climate grief, it's, I was actually reading about this too for my thesis that there's a unique human response that we have when. We're dealing with, so the the response that someone would have for a natural disaster, like unrelated to climate change, would be different than their response to like a terrorist attack, because a terrorist attack has a human intention to it. And with climate change, that's, there is this like human intention that people know that there's the people that are causing the climate crisis are like real people who are choosing to do this. And I think that causes a lot of rage and grief mixed together. So. Yeah. All the emotions, like I've seen it all and felt it all in different varying degrees. So,
2: yeah, I have to ask and, and we you don't have to like answer necessarily, but like, I'm just I'm struck by between your day job and then this work that you do as it is sort of within your scope as an organizer. How do you put this aside at the end of the day after a day of helping people through these really difficult moments in their everyday life and then you're coming home and then you're sitting on the phone or on Skype or Zoom or in a room with organizers talking about their existential climate griefs, are you able to put that aside at the end of the day? Or is that something you're still learning how to do, I guess?
3: Yeah, definitely going to be a lifelong process of learning how to do that. I do feel like surprisingly emotionally stable (laughs) right now. And it's interesting because so many people are really struggling right now. And this fall was really, really hard for me. So I I feel like I'm just like on the opposite wavelength with people in terms of our crisis period. So at least right now that's helpful because I, I do feel capable of like helping make space for other people's grief and the heaviness of that. And it doesn't feel like it weighs me down. And so much of it has to do with my faith, my spirituality and the practice of surrender. Like so much of my journey in terms of spirituality has just been like learning how to let go of a need to be in control. And grief is a lot. It's a lot of surrender and it's a lot of willing to be present to this like incomprehensible level of pain and just be with it and not try and change it and not try and fix it, but just be present to it. And I think all, all of us are deeply capable of that to do that for each other, like able to make those spaces for one another. And there's actually so much life that that comes out of those spaces because there's so much compassion. So I feel like aspects of the work really give me a feeling of life and energy. But there's definitely hard days as well. So it, yeah, it's a journey.
2: That was really, that was quite stunning. Actually, it's good to hear that you're, well, of course, you probably wouldn't have embarked on this. I don't know, process of opening up these grief circles if you weren't in a place where you felt you, like you were capable of holding that space for those folks. So that makes total sense. Can you actually elaborate a little bit more about how your faith has maybe shaped your approach to this work or given birth to it, I guess? Because I'm sure there's a world in which where if you hadn't become a chaplain, you wouldn't necessarily be equipped with the tools to open up these circles this way.
3: And someone asked me that the other day. They're like, would you still be doing this work if it wasn't for your faith? And I said no without even thinking about it. And I had never even like imagined trying to do this work without my faith. And for me, and this was like, my faith really did like, my experience of spirituality really deepened during my own wrestle and struggle with climate grief because nothing else worked. (laughs) Like no other stories went deep enough. I I personally don't think you, you can like actually emotionally face the reality of the climate crisis and try to come to some rational conclusion about what that means for your life and I'm sure there's people out there who can and that's beautiful but for me I just I, I like had to find something deeper to ground myself in that was deeper than climate change deeper than grief deep, deeper than suffering and that's been the practice is continually learning ways that work for me to ground myself in that deeper love so yeah I How does it affect my work? It's like I thought about for a while just doing, not doing a route of chaplaincy and doing more counseling or psychology or psychotherapy even. And part of that appealed to me because it has a wider appeal. It's more accessible. Like people have a lot of connotations with the word chaplain. But I came to the conclusion that like I didn't want to do this work if I wasn't able to incorporate spirituality in some sense, because for me that it's so central to it and i think of spirituality in a really broad sense like it doesn't have to be god to me spirituality is like our experience of love our experience of connection to ourselves to the world around us to the people around us and i, I don't think people can process climate grief unless they feel deeply connected to something whether it's a, their community their the land around them a social movement like liberation whatever it is that you have to find what is holding you In order to let, sometimes I think of it like grief makes our ideas of the world fall apart. And grieving is a process of like letting that deconstruction happen. And in order to let that messy deconstruction happen, you have to have something stable beneath you. And that's also why people can't grieve alone. That's why we're numb. That's why we're in denial. Because our bodies literally won't let us grieve alone. Like they just won't do it. We'll just be numb forever (laughs) until you have a shared space. And that's where... I think emotions have more room to move.
2: Yeah, that numbness is like, it's like a defense mechanism because of course you can't be thinking about your grief all the time because if you were, how could you possibly function? So if if I'm right in what I heard, it's like your faith acts as like like a framework for you to operate and have these conversations with yourself or with other people within. Awesome. Thank you for that. That felt... There was a lot of candor there and I appreciate it. So moving on sort of like specifically to, to these grief circles that you've opened up recently, what have you got planned for them? I've seen two promoted on Instagram. What's your plan for those two circles and going forward if there are longer term plans?
3: Yeah. yeah. So the plan right now is the bi-weekly every two weeks having a circle Monday evening and we've had one already, the first one. And yeah, my plan will probably change as we go and I find out what works and what doesn't, but it's pretty informal. There's like an exercise, like a a personal reflection exercise where people do a bit of a free write. There's a, a group discussion. I might do some like partner discussions in future circles. And then I always end with a sharing circle. And it's a pretty kind of structured sharing circle and with various prompts. But I think it's really like an intentional space where everyone has the floor for a certain period of time, however long or short they want it, to just share whatever is on their heart one thing I always say especially around the sharing circle is you don't have to come up with a nice ending you don't have to end if there's a but there's a silver lining or like oh but it's actually all okay in the end because I think people feel a lot of pressure to do that in other parts of our lives right it's like I can't just be full-on despair all the time I need to be like yeah end on a good note or whatever and I really am adamant that people i don't want people to feel that way i want them to know that it's okay to just feel despair and it's okay to stay there so coming back i just have a couple questions left
2: right now at least as as i understand you you have sort of two circles going you have one that you've identified for folks who are organizers and then one that sort of like for like the lay person how do those conversations differ from each other is there a difference in facilitation or is it literally just the the content that people bring to those spaces is different
3: Well, I've I've only done one so far out of this series and it's been open to everyone. So there was organizers and there was non-organizers. What I'm anticipating is, or what I wanted to have kind of an organizer only space. I didn't want it to feel exclusive. I didn't want people to be like, oh, am I enough of an organizer to, to be able to come? Which I was like, I know that'll happen, but people don't need to be like actively organizing right now to come. It's more... I want it to be a space where people have a shared orientation to wanting to do work that's like transformative in some way, like politically or socially transformative in some way. And like wanting to commit their life to it and not in a way that has to be like huge, but just I don't know that. um, Yeah, because in my thesis research, it was all organizers and many of them mentioned how valuable it was to have a space where They knew everyone else understood because I do think there's some unique aspects to to, like the grief of organizers that are different than other people in a way that's like intense and hard because they're like constantly confronted with the reality of climate change in a way other people aren't. They're constantly confronted with loss and failure in a way that other people aren't. On the flip side, they also have this beautiful opportunity for community that other people don't necessarily have. And that comes up in, in grief spaces. And I try and foster that because I think it's so important, but like people feel solidarity. And that is spiritual to me. And I like hear that from other people too. When I'm like, what's the most powerful experience you've had as an organizer? It's always, you know, like singing with a bunch of people or like being at a rally and just feeling like I was like so much like uh, a part of something so much bigger than myself. Like those, that kind of language. And to do organizing work, like you need to plug into that feeling in that experience. And I think articulate what that means to you. What does it mean for you to be part of this movement? What does it mean? What does liberation mean to you? What does solidarity mean to you? Like, and that allows people to actually move through the grieving process in a really beautiful way. And people who are organizers don't really have that same, yeah. I think they can feel another way to do this is really to feel and foster your connection to land and to place. I think that can be a huge resource for people, which we all have access to. But yeah, there's definitely differences in how organizers grieve versus non-organizers.
2: No, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there, like with the idea that like, although as organizers, you're constantly confronted with those realities and crises and those fears all the time, you do have that community that holds you and like those occasional feelings of that sort of, I don't know. It's almost it's akin to euphoria when you hit that sweet spot in a in a group setting or whatever not always in a group setting where you're like oh my god i'm part of something so much bigger things are really changing things are really happening there really is like possibility for something amazing to happen here and those like you said they really carry you through and it's reminding me of a time when i was working at an organization and sorry this is on the flip side of it when you've got somebody who maybe doesn't have that community to help them through it and i was working at an organization here in Ottawa that was volunteer based but didn't do a very good job of fostering a community amongst those volunteers. It was very much like volunteers would come in, do data entry, go home kind of thing. And there was a volunteer who was a she volunteered with us all the time. So we knew her really well and we chatted with her all the time and she was in with me and a few other folks doing data entry. And she's like, you know, sometimes I just I feel so scared and sad about climate. Do you think anybody else ever feels like that? And it was like, oh my God, Denise, yes, all the time. And it broke my heart that she like, I don't know that this organization had done such a poor job of fostering that sense of community that like this was the first time that she'd ever been able to voice that out loud and have that conversation. And anyway, so it's so important, I think, that you are having these conversations with people who maybe don't have a space for this in their everyday lives. And it's like, yeah, I talk to I talk to my organizing friends all the time about climate grief and they all get it and we all get it. And, and it's. You barely have to speak about it because it's just, it's a shared experience. But for folks that don't have those connections, it's, oh my God, impossibly important. Last couple questions. What's the response so far been like? Have you got just like this deluge of people being like, oh my God, yes, thank you? At least that's what I'm imagining. It's like, yeah,
3: it's been really, yeah, it's been bigger than I expected. And I did run a couple last year and I didn't promote them that much and I had two or three people show up to the circles, which is still like very, You can have a great circle with three people. But yeah, the response this time was a lot. I had to like close registration for the one this past week. And I think, yeah, like it just got widely shared. And I do think because of COVID, like there, it really was this like the fifth wave sort of people just really reaching the end of their and then some people doing similar work who reached out to me, which was really hey. cool and encouraging to see and talk to those people. And, and I'm also offering one-on-one sessions, which I have not that's like new for me to offer and have had some good response there as well. I think people are a little more cautious, like fair enough, because they don't really know what it involves. What is climate grief coaching? Or I also call it spiritual direction, but that's also a word people don't really have a context for what that could look like. But there's definitely some people that are in a space where they are wanting something more intentional and continued. So yeah, definitely a lot of need.
2: So what are some resources that you might point listeners towards if for some reason or other, they're not able to tap into these specific circles that you're offering? What are some other either spaces or things they can read or watch or listen to or even just prompt ideas for conversations?
3: Yeah, there's I have like a whole re- like Google Doc, public Google Doc that has a whole list of resources. So I'm happy to people can find that on my website. There's some other God, I can't remember the name of any of the organizations right now, but there's some some good organizations that offer regular or semi-regular circles. And and I think like some of them are free, drop in. There's like a whole like climate psychologist organization where you can find like a therapist who's uh, climate informed that's what you're looking for. Yeah. And stuff. There's some workbooks and guidebooks out there. It's, I don't know, I haven't found a lot of offerings that are grounded in anti-capitalist politics. There's a lot of NGO type, like deal with climate anxiety by self-care and burn a candle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, or, or they are moving towards like political action and engagement, but it's more like surface level. Yeah. It's not a lot of like, here's how you build deep, intentional community that you're going to live in for the rest of your life, which to be fair, is kind of an intense, you know, thing to offer maybe. But yeah, I'm still waiting for like more communists and socialists to make climate grief content. So
2: yeah, waiting, waiting for the Adrian Marie Brown book to come yeah. out about it or something like that.
3: And like her books are still so like emergent strategies, Awesome
2: tools for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even without explicitly being like, this is a book for climate grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned your website. Where can listeners find like you slash your work? Obviously not like what's your personal email. But yeah, how can people find those resources?
3: Mm-hmm. Probably I'm most active on Instagram. They can follow me at the climate chaplain. And I have a little link tree there to all a bunch of other links to my website and Twitter, I think, and other things. My website is <laughs> did not buy the domain, but yeah, Instagram is probably the best place. And I am more, yeah, most active on there.
2: That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation. I'm so sorry. This is at the end of your work day. I'm sure you have to like make dinner and then just decompress yourself. So I really appreciate you taking this half an hour to talk to me. Thank you so much. I'll, yeah. I'll let you go.